The final Sunday morning service of the year is also the final sermon in this series that has been covering the full story of humanity, also the full story of Christmas. We started in Genesis, and that is the creation of the world, the creation of mankind. And those are united because I pointed out to you the major themes in God's story. We talked about the responsibility of mankind. We talked about the ruin of mankind. And we talked about the redemption of mankind. The responsibility of man was to express the glory of God. We have dominion over the world, and we represent and showcase God's love and mercy and authority. The ruin of man came because of Satan. Sin came into the world, and we were no longer able to fulfill our duty. We failed to live up to our design, and consequently, we deserved the judgment of God. But at the point of our ruin, when God pronounced a curse on the man and on the woman and on the earth, he also promised a redeemer. A son would be born who would defeat Satan and undo the effects of sin upon the earth. And now we know who that redeemer is. That is Jesus Christ. We also know something that Old Testament Israel did not. It was a mystery to them. The mystery was that the Messiah was going to come in two phases. The passages dealing with his humility, his suffering, is tied to his first coming. And the passages dealing with his glory and his exaltation is tied to his second coming. The first phase, that's what we celebrate at Christmas and also at Easter, because they're both tied to his earthly ministry. Christ came to this earth, God in human flesh. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a perfect life of obedience to God's law. He died, he gave up his life on the cross as a sacrifice for sin. But on the third day, he was raised again in glory, and he ascended to the Father. But when he ascended, the disciples were stuck, Acts says, looking at the clouds, and angels appeared and said, why are you staring at the clouds? He's gone. You have work to do, but he will return, and he will come back in the same way you saw him leave, in the clouds. So Christ came the first time to provide eternal redemption for sinners. He paid the price of sin under the wrath of God. He was our substitute. He came to give sinners who trust in him a new heart. He came to give us power over sin. This is the message and this is the movement that has continued into the whole world for the past 2,000 years. Christianity has brought many blessings to the world But it doesn't take long for us to turn on the news or look around and realize that humanity is still not living up to God's design. We do not perfectly represent God. We see that on a national level, and we see it on a personal level. Even those of us who've experienced the transformation that Christ provides know that there's a a frustration. Peter says there's a war between the flesh and the spirit. Our members wage war against us We still face temptation, and we still fail our Lord. We've been rescued from the power and the penalty of sin, but we still have here on earth the presence of sin in our hearts and in the world. We see the effects of the curse. So we live with hope. One day, our hope will be fulfilled. Christ will come again, not as a suffering servant, but as a conquering king. This is our hope as Christians. Jesus is coming. It's not just a hope in the verb sense, the way the world uses I hope Jesus comes back. It's a hope in the, in the Bible. It's primarily used as a noun. This is our hope. We have a hope. We don't know when God's going to move the world into the final phase of his plan, but we know it will happen. This was the hope even of Old Testament Israel. The closing verses of Psalm 2 point us to that day. And it directs, the psalm is, ends by directing itself to the kings and the rulers of the earth. It says this, Psalm 2. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear re- and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son. Honor him, fear him, serve him. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. It's a very serious, sobering exhortation there. 
But that's not the end of the psalm. Psalm 2 ends with this. It says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the story of Christ. He's going to come to judge the world, but he will come to bless those who have trusted in him. Those are the only two options. Either you will be judged for all eternity by Christ, judged by the Son, or you will be blessed by him forever. So as we come today to the end of God's story, we realize there are only two primary messages. Number one, the enemies of God will be defeated. Number two, the children of God will be rescued. Those are the only options. The enemies are defeated and the children are rescued. For some, when you talk about the end of the world and when you talk about judgment, it it can sound like a scary concept, but that's not the way it's presented in the scriptures. For those who've trusted in Christ, even Christ's judgment is a joy. It's a source of comfort. It's a reminder that God's justice will prevail. Nobody gets away with rebelling against the anointed one of God. To see this in scripture, I want you to turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. You might remember uh, we we, we preached through 1 Thessalonians. This is a, a new church, a young church. But it was a church experiencing persecution. And so Paul has that in mind as he writes them this letter. People's lives were at risk because of their faith. Remember, it's in the New Testament. There's a group of books that start with T, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus. So look for that little section. In response to the risk the people were facing, Paul reminds them of the future. Look at 2nd Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. Speaking of their steadfastness in persecution, he says, verse 5, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know the gospel and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. So for the unbelievers, there will be eternal destruction and vengeance. But for those who trust in Christ, there will be glory. And verse seven says, relief. Relief is coming. I remember as a kid seeing commercials. And you and your kid, you don't know what's going on sometimes on TV. But the tagline was, Rolades spells relief. Do you remember that? I think they still use the tagline. What in the world are Rolades? And then, and then, oh, it's for heartburn. What in the world is heartburn? Oh, you're a kid. As a kid, I had no clue what heartburn was. Now I'm older. I know what heartburn is. I understand what relief means. The first time I had heartburn, I thought I was dying. I didn't, you don't know what it is. And so now we drink a glass of cold water or you take an an acid. That is just a a minuscule picture of a greater relief that is coming when Christ comes with his angels in glory to rescue his people. The enemies of God will be destroyed and the children of God will be rescued, saved. Jump over almost to the end of the Bible to the book of Second Peter. So th- these were words from the Apostle Paul. Now we're going to hear from the Apostle Peter. Both of them always had the end in mind. This is, this is the Christian hope. The recipients of this letter were also experiencing persecution. They were also dealing with a culture that rejected any idea that God would judge them or that God would ever intervene. Life just goes on. Every day just follows the previous day. God's not going to intervene in human history. And in chapter 3, Peter reminds them, 
Remember in the days of Noah, God destroyed the world. He's going to do it again. The first time he did it with water. The next time he'll do it with fire. Look at chapter 3 of 2 Peter, verse 7. It says, by the same word, that is the word of God, by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And then jump down to verse 10. More talk of coming fire. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But, verse 13 says, according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This world is temporary. This world, we could say, is a giant firework. It's going to burn up and dissolve, and it will be gone. And on that day, the enemies of God will be judged. They will be punished. But the children of God will be rescued. And what does that reality mean for us? What does it mean for the people around you? It means if you don't know Christ, your only expectation of the life to come is judgment. It means you need to call out to Christ for mercy. It means you need to trust in his perfect, his perfect life, his death, his resurrection. Otherwise, you have no hope. But if you belong to Christ, if you are a new creation in him, it means you can live with joy and holiness and hope. No matter what problems or difficulties come in this life. There is to be in the people of God an evident anticipation and expectation because our Lord will come. Sadly, if you're like me, you don't long for eternity enough. You don't long for it strongly enough and you don't long for it often enough. That's true in my case. I think it's generally true in at least American Christianity. Generally, the longing for eternity and this desire for the life to come grows as you get older. I think that's because we've seen more people pass. I think Jim said, I know more people on the hill, Rose Hills, than I know down here now. You get older, you have more pain, so you're waiting for, for relief. But it was not God's intention that only old people care about eternal life. All of us should care about it. But why doesn't that happen Part of the problem is that we just don't know enough about the world to come. How can we hope for something we don't understand fully? Another part of the problem is even if we know something about eternity, we, we don't meditate on it. We don't bring it to our minds often enough. But I think the biggest component here is we focus way too much on this world. That, that's what it means to be worldly. There's a worldliness to all of us. We're worldly people instead of heavenly people. And we have to admit our life here is comfortable. Our life here is filled with many pleasures. Many of you probably enjoyed those things over the holidays. Family, friends, food, those are good things. Comfort and joy are not bad things. But they're, they're, they're not supposed to be ends in themselves. They're supposed to be pointers to something greater that God is going to provide for us. Maybe you've heard the old expression about a person when they say, oh, he's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. Have you heard that? He's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. And it's intended to be almost like an insult to somebody. They're just focused on heaven. They're no good on earth. That is not a biblical description of someone. We're supposed to be heavenly minded. 
But when you are heavenly minded, when you set your mind on the things above, you become the man or the woman God created you to be here on earth. That, that hope uh, uh, fuels your holiness. So today, with the help of the Spirit of God, I hope to use the remainder of our time to incline our hearts to eternity. We've already talked about the destruction that will come on God's enemies, but I want to focus the rest of our time on the redemption to come. What happens at the end? What does eternity look like for the redeemed? And so for that, we're going to the final chapters of the Bible. I said we would. Go to Revelation chapter 21. While you're turning there, I have some uh, caveats maybe or upfront messages I want to give you. I have four, just things to remember before we get to our study this morning. The first message is that there are lots of debates regarding the end times, and we've talked about them as we study Daniel, even Thessalonians. Most of those debates have to do with how you get to eternity. So what's going to happen immediately after this phase of life, and how do we get to eternity? Our focus is going to be the eternal state. That's the new heavens and the new earth. That's what Peter says we're waiting for. What's that going to be like? So that's going to be my focus. We're not going to get into all the, the debates. Some people think John's visions are more poetic than literal. But the, either way, the fact is what he's saying points to and tells us about eternity. So if you're looking to solve your end times table, we're not going to do that this morning. Letting you know up front. Secondly, uh, I think it's important for you to understand that the eternal state, which we're going to talk about, is different than heaven right now as we think about it. So when someone, a Christian, dies and we say, oh, he went to heaven, what we mean is that that person, though their body is here, their spirit has gone into the eternal, blessed, and joyful presence of God. The Bible calls it rest. Jesus called it paradise. The apostle Paul said that is far better than this life, but that Heaven right now is not the same as the eternal state. When a Christian dies, the spirit is freed from sin. So they're perfected in that sense. They're freed from this weak body of death. But Christ said one day that spirit is going to be reunited with a glorified body. And when God's plan is complete, the redeemed will all in glorified bodies spend eternity in a new earth. That's what we're talking about today. So just want to clarify that. You know, well, so he's in heaven. He's, he's on the golden streets. Not yet. There is a heaven now, but that is not. It's the waiting room of heaven, if you will. It's glorious. It's joyful. It's better than this life, but it's not the eternal state. Thirdly, another caveat is that while the Bible describes eternity, we're going to look at some descriptors today. There are going to be a lot of questions that we don't have answers to. So just be prepared for that. We're going to do a fast overview of what it says. If you have questions when this is over, by all means, you can ask me. By all means, find, I can recommend some books if you'd like to follow this up more. But just know that there, there may be some good or exciting questions you have that we're not going to be able to answer. Lastly, as we come into the study of the new heavens and the new earth, the final message I want you to know is that the Bible presents the new heavens and the new earth as a physical, literal place. Many times you have, because of the centuries, Christians rejecting the pleasures of life, and sometimes in, in, in a dangerous, unhelpful way, and there was this move to make everything spiritual, non-physical, non-literal. But when Jesus rose from the dead, he, was, he said, I'm not a spirit. I'm not a ghost. He was a glorified, physical human being. He told Thomas, touch me. Touch my scars. He ate with the disciples to prove it to them. He made breakfast, assuming he ate, we assume he ate with them as well. So when we think about the eternal state, we need to get rid of any ideas that this is going to be a strictly spiritual place. You know, you're going to float on a cloud and you're going to have a harp and there's going to be light, but, but that's about it. That is not the biblical picture of the eternal state. Jesus said, everyone will be resurrected. Everyone will hear the voice of God and they will be raised. They will receive an eternal body. Those who ignored, those who rebelled and rejected Christ will get a new body. It will be a, a new body perfectly made to endure eternal punishment. And those who've trusted in Christ, those who love Christ, will get a new body, Philippians 3 says, just like he received, a glorified body. So as you think about the new heavens and the new earth, remember, it's a physical, tangible experience. In that sense, it's going to be 
similar to the world we're in now. It's physical. It's, it's tangible. You can, you can touch things. You can experience things. We will be different. The world will be different, but it still will be a tangible place. Heaven and earth will be united forever. So what's that going to be like? Let's look at Revelation 21. Start in verse 1. It says there, then, John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. As we go through this study, I'm going to be pointing out some similarities, primarily differences between the world we live in now and the world to come. And the first one is a similarity. When John says a new heaven and a new earth, people's minds would go right back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Our, 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 the world we live in now was created by God. The new world, in the same way, will be created by God. It's a gift. But there are going to be some major differences. You see, at the end of verse 1, it says, and the sea was no more. So here's a second observation. The world we live in now is divided by oceans. The new world will have no seas. No seas. No interruptions either. Sorry. No seas. Why does that matter? What's the significance of saying there are no seas in the new earth? Well, the sea represents a number of things. To start with, the sea symbolizes fear. And especially for the Israelites, they were not sailors. The open ocean, even today, is a scary place. The sea also represents separation. Continents are separated by oceans. But in the new world, that's not going to be the case. There will be free access to the entire world. The sea also represents emptiness. As human beings, we're not made to live on the sea. We, we find an island surrounded by the sea, but we don't live on the sea. We, we, we travel across the sea, even if it's for an extended period of time. But where the sea is, it's It's empty. In our world today, scientists tell us about 71% of the Earth's surface is covered with water. So we're living on 29% of the surface of the Earth. I'm sure it was actually, uh, there was, I'm sure there was less water before the flood of Noah. That would have been a major shift. But those, that large body, those large bodies of water mean that when God told Adam, fill the Earth and subdue it, that that, that command can't be fully expressed by humanity because we, we, we don't rule the oceans. But in the new heavens, the new earth, we'll be able to fill the earth and subdue it. And so if you decide in the new heavens and the new earth to you want to visit whatever the, the new Hawaii looks like or the new Italy, you don't have to take an airplane. You don't have to take a boat. It will be amazing. Now, as a clarification, I don't think it means that there isn't going to be a body of water in the new heavens. Later in chapter 22, we'll read about a river. So I think there will be rivers and lakes. I think they're going to be filled with the, the, the creatures that God created for his glory in the sea. But what we're not going to see is these giant oceans or seas that separate mankind from each other. There will be a united world with global access. And no one's going to be complaining about the weather. What else do we see? A third observation. In this world, you have God and man separated. But in the new world, God and man will be united. You see that in chapter 3 of Genesis. Adam and Eve sinned. They're kicked out of the garden. And God actually says, I'm kicking him out of the garden so that he cannot take of the tree of life. He's separated from eternal life. And he's separated from my presence. So God's unity. God walked with Adam. And that was split because of the fall. And then in the nation of Israel, like we read at the beginning of the service, God set up a system in which he would dwell among his people. He, he dwelt in the most holy place. He, he was there to bless them and preserve them. But Israel continued in unbelief and the temple was destroyed. But in the eternal state, we go back to what it was like in the garden where God and man enjoy perfect fellowship. Look at verses 2 and three of Revelation 21. John says, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared 
as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. This new earth is going to have a, a capital city, a central gathering location. That's the new Jerusalem. It is a city specially prepared by God himself. It is his gift to the world. It will come down from heaven. But the greatest gift will be God's very own presence. He will dwell once again with his people. This will be greater than the tabernacles where only one man could go once a year. With our sin removed, this will be unending, perfect fellowship. The, na the nations are not separated, and neither will there be a separation between man and God. There will only be perfect fellowship forever between God and his people. The next verse, verse 4, gives us another distinction. This world is filled with pain. The new world has no pain. Look at verse 4. It continues. He, God, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. This world is filled with pain. In a multitude of ways. If you don't know that, you will figure it out real soon. This world is filled with pain. But in the new earth, God tells us, no more pain. No more waking up with a sore back. No more failing organs. No more weakened muscles. No more tearful goodbyes to the people you love. No more pain. I mean, it's almost as if the best way to describe it is what's not there. This is almost unimaginable. No pain at all. You and I will have eternity to enjoy God and to enjoy his creation. This is a new earth for us. And after 10,000 years have passed, if you decide you want to go visit whatever the new Italy looks like, you can go there. Walk there if you want. Take as long as you want. This is a gift from God purchased for us through the victory of Christ. Look at verses 7 and 8. The one who conquers will have this heritage. This is our inheritance. This is what Romans 8 speaks of. This is, this is the, Romans 8 says this world is groaning, waiting to be made new, just like we will be made new. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. No pain, no possibility of pain, no sin, no wickedness, no crime, no police, only perfection forever with an eternity of pleasures and wonders. And the remainder of the focus, the focus of the remainder of the vision is this capital city, the new Jerusalem. John describes it as a, as a beautiful city. Maybe it seems harder now. You, hear, I, you know, I see the news and people talk about these great cities that were built years ago and they go back and say, it's just not what it used to be. Maybe you've been somewhere and thought, what an ugly city. What an ugly building. Who, who built this? This is awful. Not in heaven. You're not going to think that in eternity. In this world, we have many examples of ugliness. In the new world, only beauty. In the new world, there will only be beauty. The new Jerusalem, according to John's vision, will be radiant with the glory of God. It will be, he says, like a flawless diamond, reflecting the light of God's glory in every place. Verse 16 tells us the city is a perfect square. The height is the same as its length and its width. 
It's more than likely it's a cube. Some have said that could be a pyramid, but a cube matches more with the shape of the holiest place. Verse 21 says, the streets of the city will be pure gold, transparent in their purity. Verse 12 says, the city will have a great wall all around. The wall will have 12 foundation stones with the names of Christ's true apostles. Those foundation stones will be beautiful, precious stones. You can read that for yourself. Look them up. What do they look like? The colors. But these are not impure, but perfect on the wall, because it's a square, there's going to be 12 gates, three gates on each side, north, east, south, west. Every gate will have an angel stationed there. Every gate will have a name of a, a tribe of Israel on it. And maybe you've heard in Christianity, they speak of the pearly gates. It's not exactly the best term because they're not gates covered in pearls. John says each gate is a pearl, one giant pearl. That's the gate. No human dream, no artist's rendering, no Hollywood movie can capture what the beauty of this city will be. This will be greater than anything we can imagine. And there's a question that comes up, because I think it's fair to ask, well, if the city is open and safe, why are there walls? And why are there gates? It's a fair question. People ask the same thing about norms or 7-Eleven. It's always open. Why do you need a door? Well, the walls and the gates are part of the beauty and the majesty. If Jurassic Park can have a giant gate, why can't heaven? This is part of the, the joy of entering into a place given to us by God. Another prominent attribute of this city is its size. In verse 16 of John's vision, an angel goes out to measure it. It says the measurement of man is the same as the measurement of angels. It says it's 12,000 stadia, that's the Greek, on each side. And your Bible might have a footnote that says that is 1,380 miles. So it's 1,380 miles by 1,380 miles. You multiply those together, that's how you get square miles. From east to west, that is the distance about from L.A. to the far side of Texas, touching Arkansas. Okay, that's how far that is. If you go south to north, that's from L.A. to about the middle of Canada. That is a giant square. This is a massive city. In comparison, you take Disneyland, Disney World, Northbury Farm, SeaWorld, Legoland, whatever you want, Smith Park, whatever you want, put it all together. That is a speck compared to the size of this city. This will be the center of the new earth, and you and I will have an eternity to explore it and to enjoy it for the glory of God. Everything's going to be free. It'll never be too hot or too cold. Your feet aren't going to start hurting. You'll never need to use the bathroom. And they're never going to kick you out. Why is this city so large? Why is it so massive? Because the city is a reflection of the infinite wonder and majesty of the God that we serve. This is a, the beauty of the city is a reflection of the beauty of God. You read Isaiah's vision, and it's a sea of crystal. It's all beauty. It's a lost word. It's actually, as a man, it feels very feminine. We, you know, but, but men like beauty, too. We just don't like to use the word. We're impressed by things. There's visual glory. Look at verse 22 of Revelation 21. Verse 22, John says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. This is interesting. No temple? This is heaven. Aren't we supposed to go somewhere to worship God? Well, there is not going to be one small designated space where you can meet with God. There will be a throne of God. We'll read that in a little bit. But in every place, the glory of God will be manifest and Christ will be praised. God's glory will shine through in the dazzling streets of gold and in the precious stones of the wall and the foundations. God's presence will fill the earth. The light will shine through these stones. And the manifestation of God's glory is the light. So here's another observation. In this world, the sun gives us light. In the new world, we won't need a sun. So here's a new world we're going to have. It's created by God. There are no seas, no oceans. God and man are perfectly united. There is no pain. There is only beauty. And there is no need of a sun. That's verse 23. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. 
for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the lamb. That's Christ, the second person of the Trinity. The lamb is the image of God. The, John says it even in the birth of Christ. He, we beheld his glory, full of grace and truth. Christ is the manifestation of God. He's the lamp. And what we see radiating from him is the glory of God. This doesn't necessarily mean that there won't be any celestial bodies in the sky. But whatever we see in the sky will be for beauty. Not essential to life here on the new earth. We will have light. We will have life from God himself. Verse 25 says, speaking of the city, there will be no night there. You never have to say, well, I got to go. It's getting dark. I got to work tomorrow. Only day forever. Let's do another observation. Number seven, I think, in this world, we have nations at war. But in the new earth, the nations will worship together. Look at verses 24 through 26. By its light, so the light of the glory of God through the lamp, which is the lamb, by its light will the nations walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gate will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Again, very interesting to think about. There's a reference there to kings. There's a reference there to nations. So you have the fulfillment of something that was prefigured by the wise men. The wise men were ancient royalty coming from foreign nations outside the Roman Empire coming to pay homage to the king of Israel. And now you're going to have the kings and the nations of the earth coming to the new Jerusalem to worship the one true king of kings. But just think through the idea that kings are mentioned, nations are mentioned. That means there's still going to be culture. There's still going to be some kind of distinct nationality. Today, we generally identify nations and cultures by food. So you have Mexican food, Italian food, and oh, here's what a tamale looks like in Guatemala. Here's what a tamale looks like in Mexico, or in this part of Oaxaca, or whatever part of Mexico. Here's what a tamale looks like in El Salvador. Cultures and nations give identities. That will be there in the new earth. There will still be some kind of national identity. I don't know what nation you're going to end up in. I don't know how that works. But however that works, it won't exist to divide humanity. It's going to be a perfect showcase of the varied grace of God, and the nations will come. Maybe you've seen the opening ceremonies before to the Olympics or to the World Cup. If you're there for the sports, no one watches it, but if you love that stuff, you see all, and the banners are there, and the parade is there. All the cultures come together. They're all expressions of mankind uniting for one cause, but in the new earth, it won't be for a sport. It won't be for profit, for money. It will be to worship the true king of kings. In chapter 22, we find that there is a throne, a throne of God, a throne of the Lamb, and from that throne, a river of water is flowing. It doesn't give us dimensions, but we are told that the river is bright and clear. Again, like crystal. The picture there is unending life and refreshment from the Lord. And we also see something there that we've seen before in Scripture. That's the tree of life. Remember that? Garden of Eden. In our world, we're cut off from the tree of life. In the new world, we're given access to the tree of life. Look at verse 2. It says the tree, it says the river goes through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life. What does it mean to have a, ri- what does it mean to have a tree on both sides of a river? You picture that however you want, but that's what it says. A giant tree on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. I noticed during the bread time they were passing out fruit cups. You get to make your own fruit cocktail in heaven, but it'll take you a year to get all of them. This is just part of God's provision and and abundance. Different fruit each month. What's fruit for? For eating for enjoying. 
Everyone has the fruits they like or the fruits they don't like. My, my, my dad grew up eating marañón. It's like a cashew. It's the fruit of the cashew. So if, it, because he's in Guatemala, they, he, he gets that. But in his memories of, oh, you found a fruit, you know, eat that. Whatever it is, there's fruit. There's food. God wants us to delight in him. You will eat in eternity. Don't worry. You're not going to starve. But when you eat, it won't be for sustenance. It won't be even because you feel hunger. It will be to the joy and to the glory of God. You will be perfectly fulfilling what the Apostle Paul said, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. The end of the verse 2 says, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And that's interesting. There's some questions that come up here because healing is associated with something bad, something wrong. Well, there's no death in the new earth. The curse has been undone. There's no sickness. So how could these leaves serve to heal? The Greek word used there for healing is connected to our word therapy. So some have said, well, this means the leaves have some therapeutic effect. What does that mean? We don't know. You maybe will eat the leaves. We eat leaves today, some of you. Lettuce, cabbage, these are leaves. Spinach. Some people have said maybe the leaves will be used in a kind of tea. But the reference there is to nations, it says. So it could be a way of saying everyone will receive healing or some kind of therapeutic effect from these leaves, some type of supernatural eucalyptus. But another possibility, some have said, is that the, these leaves will be used in the new Jerusalem as part of a ceremonial meal that unites the nations. It brings nations together in a meaningful way. I don't know what it means. We'll find out together eventually. But the nations come together and they're united by God through the tree of life. As we wrap up, there's one final observation. The new earth is created by God. It has no seas. It's where God and man are united. There is no pain. There is only beauty. There is no need of a sun. There is access to the tree of life. And finally, there in that place, mankind will reign forever. Mankind will reign forever. Which is an interesting way to say it because this is heaven. Wait a minute. I thought God reigns forever. Yes, he does. But he will mediate that reign over the earth through a redeemed humanity. Look at verses three through five. So we're in Revelation 22, verse three. It says, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they, the servants of God, they will reign forever and ever. So we have God with a universal authority, but within that universal authority, mankind will be delegated authority. And that shouldn't surprise us because do you remember the beginning of the story? God creates Adam and Eve. Before he creates them, he's thinking out loud in scripture and he said, let us make man and let us give him dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the animals of the land. We were placed here to have dominion. That's, that's the purpose of humanity on the earth, to, to express the authority and the rule of God. We're not just here to, in this world, because things break, we have to fix them. That's part of dominion. In the new heavens, the new earth, things aren't going to be breaking. So what does dominion look like? It looks like some of the things you do in your own house. The season changes, you redecorate. Why? That's dominion. It's your house. Do what you want. I don't like this plant here. I'm going to move it. I'm going to put it over. That's dominion. This is, this is the service of God. We were placed here to express the authority of God as we care for the earth and, and, and interact and love one another. So in the fall, we lost the ability to do that perfectly, but the image of God was, didn't, didn't go away, but it was marred, it was blurred, it, it faded. So how does that come back? Well, Christ comes. He is the image of God. He's God in human flesh. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In eternity, we will see Christ. We will be made like him. We will be without sin, and so we will be perfectly able to reign over the earth 
just like God intended. This is the end of the story. Christ came to redeem mankind, to restore mankind to its true purpose. It's kind of a weird way to say it, but in eternity, you and I will be fully human. Living life as God intended, as his royal representatives upon the earth. Don't for a minute ever think, man, I'm going to be bored in heaven. I'm going to be bored in eternity. You're going to have things to do. Don't worry about that. You're going to have some kind of authority. I don't know what it is, but authority will be delegated to you. God will decide what it is, but you will play a part in ruling over creation. Our family went to Knott's this past week, and you've got these sections of the park that are closed. Why? Because they just like to change things every few years, and it takes a couple years to change. I don't know. Maybe that's what happens in the new heavens and new earth. You know, this is nice. We've been here. It's giant. Uh, you know, after a million years, I kind of saw everything, finally. Well, don't worry. There, someone's going to renovate this area. You'll come back next year, and someone's going to rain it over there, and then you still got the rest of the world to visit. We will rule over creation forever and ever. And one thing that will be consistent, one thing that is consistent between the world we live in now and the new world is that mankind is never self-sufficient. We don't get to choose our own purpose, our own design in this life. That's what Satan wanted us to believe. That's what Satan told Eve. God doesn't care for you. God is trying to keep you back. Don't listen to him. God, this is the message of Satan. God doesn't know really what's best for you. You decide. If you want the fruit, you take it. And that's what Eve did. But the truth is, only God knows and can give us our true purpose. In eternal heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth, we will be doing exactly what we were made to do, ruling and caring for God's good creation. That's the end of the story. It is the full redemption of mankind for the glory of God, and it's all through and because of Jesus Christ. This is what he accomplished. You have people, this is the time of year, new year, new you. New year, new you. That means make a lot of resolutions that you probably won't follow up on and then you'll feel guilty about. But some of you might actually follow up on resolutions. And those resolutions may result in some improvements in your life. But nothing, no, no change you make this year into next year can compare to the improvements that Christ will bring in the new heavens and the new earth. He is going to move us into the final phase of God's story. It's the eternal chapter of the new heavens and the new earth. And there will be a new you. And there will be a new me. All only for those who surrender to Christ. Those who've trusted in him, those, those who, 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 who go, come before God, not on the basis of their own righteousness, but on the basis of his perfection, his sacrifice in our place. And that's the desire of God, that you would go from where you are in your sin and be redeemed by Jesus Christ. God offers it to you if you'll trust in Christ. Our king is coming back. He will finish what he started. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. The enemies of God will be destroyed and the children of God will be rescued. But when? Let me close with just a few more verses. Look at Revelation 22, verse 7. This is Jesus speaking. The visions have ended. The rest of the of the Bible, the rest of the chapter is some final words from Jesus and angels and John himself. Verse 7, Jesus is speaking. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Jump down to verse 12. Jesus continues, behold, I am coming soon bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. One final time, verse 20 
He who testifies to these things says, surely, Jesus says, surely, I am coming soon. And John responds by saying, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That's the cry of heaven. And that's the cry of the true church. Come, Lord Jesus. That will be the answer to our prayer. Let your kingdom come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that your name be hallowed, lifted up, that we in our hearts would more and more by the power of the Spirit be given might to understand, to comprehend the length, the width, the breadth, the height of all that you have prepared for us in Christ. We thank you for the many blessings we experience in this life and we ask for your forgiveness when we make that an end in itself and are satisfied in this life alone. The things we do enjoy, food and fellowship and walking and seeing nature or enjoying even technology, sports, all these things, pictures of culture that will be redeemed and enjoyed by us for eternity. But all of it is your story, not ours. We pray that you would help us turn the joys of this life into praise as we remember that they are glimpses of eternity. We pray you give us continuing hope and joy and holiness so that even when the painful times of this life come, Christ will be exalted. We thank you that you sent your son who bring, to bring joy to sinners, and we thank you that you will send him again and the world will be transformed. May we go out from here united in that hope and in that joy. We thank you for the flavor of heaven that we get in church as your people gather and as your name is exalted. May we all take refuge in you. We ask in Christ's name, amen.